Hey guys, welcome to the show. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and happy new year. I hope this podcast finds you having spent some wonderful time with your families in a quick little break from the Buffalo Sabres, although this season has been fun. Before we get going, I'd like to tell you the usual, that you can find us on Twitter at ickgaw, that's I-C-G-A-W. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. Today, we'll be talking about a question about just massaging the roster and twisting things up before the end of the season, but feel free to shoot them in uh, either via Twitter or email. We'd love to have you join the conversations. Tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. And one other quick personal message before we get going. Once again, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for participating in this show and supporting this show. It has been such a wonderful few months putting this together and hanging out with you guys and talking with you guys. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you, and uh, we'll see you guys out there. All right, here we go. What's up, my friends? Welcome to It Can't Get Any Worse, America's Worst Podcast for America's Worst Hockey Team. I'm your host, Jay, and today on this wonderful Christmas special episode, we'll be talking about the news that's been going down around in Buffalo for the last couple of days with the news about Patrick Berglund's contract situation and with particularly looking at an article that examines the concerns of his Blues teammates back in St. Louis. And in part two, we'll be recapping a slightly disappointing streak against the Panthers, Caps, and Ducks. And we'll be looking ahead to games against the Blues, Bruins, and Islanders. And we'll finish the show talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, where things have not gone so swimmingly the last week around town in the league. And we'll be opening up a mailbag of questions from you, the listeners. If you enjoy the show, we would so appreciate it if you would drop us a five-star review on iTunes. So appreciate the support and kind words. Here we go. On to part one. So before we talk about this What Are You Reading article, we need to recap this Patrick Berglund situation with what has gone on before we talk about the concerns from his former teammates. The Patrick Berglund situation essentially started last week. He missed a few games due to what was reported as an illness, according to Phil Housley. A few days later, he was actually suspended indefinitely by the organization for failing to report, although no further comment was made at that time. And when pressed in post-game interviews about the situation, Phil Housley said, it's really not my concern. He's not here. That's a situation for Jason Botterill to take care of. He was later placed on waivers for a buyout. As he has failed to report, he has technically, not technically, officially breached his contract And the Sabres are going to be able to mutually terminate his contract with no remaining financial obligation. 
That means that after this buyout, the Sabres will be completely free of his cap hit. His contract is $3.85 million for four years. There are three years remaining on that contract after this season, and Berglund will collect none of that remaining $12 to $15 million. Um, there are situations where he could have been bought out, like typically when a player is bought out and it's not mutual, the player is still owed a large sum of that money, and the team still carries a cap hit after that. Um, there are various ways that that can work out. This will not be the case with this contract. It was mutually terminated, and Berglund made the decision that he desperately did not want to be in Buffalo so badly that he was willing to give up this money. And there's a little bit of a narrative following this as well. Patrick Berglund's new contract came with a full no-movement clause that expired on June 30th and became a partial no-movement clause in which he needed to submit a list of teams in which he did not want to be traded, and the team had to legally honor that clause. Apparently, what happened was that the contract, or I'm sorry, the old no movement clause expired, and Patrick Berglund did not immediately submit his updated list of the 10 or I don't remember if it's 10 or 15 teams, the certain number of teams he did not want to be traded. Because that list was late, the Blues were free to trade him to any team without checking it with Berglund first. And I was listening to, this is kind of some third-hand knowledge, and I don't know the exact source, but I was listening to the Steve Dangle podcast, which is phenomenal, by the way. Um, I would recommend that 100 times. But they were citing, I believe it was Elliot Friedman, although I could not find his specific words on this. Friedman did break the news about the no-movement clause, and I believe they cited Friedman, who had had contact with a player who did not wish to be named who had had a similar experience where his no movement clause expired and he was late turning in the list and the team came to him and said look we have no plans to trade you but I just want to let you know this is what we could do because your list was late and so this was a perfectly legal move for the Blues to make even though Patrick Berglund had rights to a no a modified no trade clause it was not submitted on time, and so Berglund ended up in Buffalo, which we presume might have been on the list of teams he did not want to go to. I think that's perfectly understandable considering that it's Buffalo, New York, first of all, and second of all, they finished worst in the league. And so on that part, I feel rather badly for Patrick Berglund. He was moved to somewhere where he didn't want to be. He probably didn't want to move, period. And I kind of get the sense that you you would probably feel pretty betrayed by your former team if they took advantage of a legal aspect of your contract to get rid of you. Um, still, I'm a little. It's the actions are questionable, and we'll talk about this a lot throughout this. Like, all right, Buffalo's not the greatest place on earth. I will we will humbly admit that, but it's not. I'm going to set twelve million dollars on fire bad. If he really wanted to go somewhere else, there are better ways to go about it. Quietly request a trade and then play well. Get yourself a trade. Even if that didn't work out, the Sabres could have bought him out in a way that where he would still get paid a good chunk of money if he had just done his honest best and it hadn't worked out. 
And that's why I'm, I'm kind of concerned about this. As Buffalo Sabres fans, we've been really kind of celebrating this move and this mutual buyout in that the Sabres get out of kind of a bad contract that they were caught in, you know, Four million dollars for the next four years for a player who is 30 and only has what four points in 23 games so far this season. That's that's a pretty good deal for Buffalo, especially as they are looking to re-sign Jeff Skinner, make some more waves in the free agent market this summer, eventually re-sign Casey Middlestat and Rasmus Dahlin, who are going to demand large sums. Like getting out of this contract was not was something worth celebrating, but I hold out on that a little bit in that these are not the actions of someone who is okay. And okay could mean a number of things. It could mean I'm really pissed off that I got traded by a team that I really loved playing for and ended up here. It could be I uh, it could be I think the best case scenario we can hope for Patrick Berglund is he decided all right, I know I've got $12 million guaranteed to me coming my way, but I really want to go home to Europe. That would be perfectly understandable. If he, you know, if he was drafted, actually, I don't remember his exact draft year. Um, I believe it was 2001. He was drafted. Oh, no, that would make him way older. Sorry, 2006. So he's drafted in 2006. And then he played in Europe for a couple more years, but then came to the NHL in 2008. I mean, he spent 10 years here, starting when he was 20 years old. Maybe he decided it's time to go home. And that is perfectly understandable, even if it was worth giving up $12 million. He'll get a contract in the KHL or in the Swedish League. It won't be for nearly as much money as he was guaranteed here. But if he really wanted to go home, a fair fair play to him, whatever he wants to do. The last option that I'm really worried about is that there's some kind of significant mental health issue going on here. That thing, Because as I said, these are not the actions of someone who is doing well. The, I feel like there is something going on here that we might read about six months from now. Like we read about the Kyle Ocposo concussion situation when he was hospitalized. Like we read about the Robin Lehner substance abuse and mental health issues six months later in The Athletic. I think this is something that, that there, there, I don't think, I know, I know for certain. There is more to this story than just Patrick Berglund didn't come to practice a couple times and didn't want to play in Buffalo anymore. There's got to be something a little bit more, which leads us to a little bit of a view to what his former teammates think. Uh, This is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, an online website out of St. Louis. The headline is, Berglund's Buffalo exit leaves Blues concerned, surprised. And this is by Jim Thomas of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. This was or these quotes were taken when the Blues were in Vancouver for a recent road trip. And we'll start off with just a, his opening. After 694 games and 10 seasons with the Blues, Patrick Berglund lasted just 23 games in a few months with the Buffalo Sabres. Berglund cleared waivers Thursday, and the Sabres have terminated his contract. I don't know as of recording that that last part has actually officially happened yet. They put him on waivers, and he cleared waivers. I don't know that the official termination of the contract has actually happened yet. But anyway, moving back. 
Several blues, while concerned for his welfare, expressed surprise and in some ways were at a loss for words discussing their former teammate's situation. This is from Oscar Sundquist. I don't want to say too much except that I feel for him. He's a really good friend of mine. I don't really know what's going on with him, but hopefully he can snap out of it and come back to play hockey again. Whatever happened, I'm sorry for that. I'm trying to help him the best way I can. Sunquist said he'd been reaching out to Berglund via text. When he's ready to talk, I'm ready to listen. Defenseman Vince Dunn chimed in. I was really surprised. I don't really know what the situation is here. He was a pretty good guy here. I know all the guys liked him. So did I. It's a business but you hate to see a guy, a former teammate, be in that situation. And I don't really know why it's happening, what is going on over there. And last one from defenseman Colton Periaki, Periaki, Periaco. I don't know the backstory, so I can't put my informa- personal information on that, personal thought on that, to be honest. I haven't talked to him personally, so I don't really have a knowledgeable answer, which I think is possibly increasingly concerning in that Sunquist is noted in this article as being, you know, a fellow Swede, but also a really good friend, as he states, of Patrick Berglund. And Sunquist doesn't seem to be or does not let on that he knows what's going on in this situation either. So it's just increasingly concerning from a guy who, look, I mean, if he probably wasn't that thrilled to be traded to Buffalo, but he was a guy that the players seemed to really take to as a veteran presence on the team, particularly a veteran Swedish player on the team with such a significant presence of Swedish players on the team. He was he was dubbed the, the Swedish godfather at one point by the team. And I believe it was Jack Eichel who called him that in an interview. And it's just I'm I'm worried for Patrick Berglund. On the ice, look, I think we are gonna miss him a little bit more than we were hoping. I liked some of the physicality and the large presence being a large guy that he brought in. He scored 17 goals last year. That's no small feat. I I think he had something to offer the Buffalo Sabres this season and going forward that we just didn't quite see in the 23 games that he was here. I'm sad for the on-ice aspect. I'm more just concerned for Patrick Berglund that something is going on here. I wish him the best and a long and happy career and life. And I hope that we hear better news about this situation and that he is doing well and is happy doing whatever he wants to do. I will tweet out that article from the St. Louis Dispatch, and I will also put that information in the show notes. That's going to do it for part one. We're going to move on to part two, where we're going to recap two rather disappointing performances against the Panthers and Capitals, and a marginally better one against the Anaheim Ducks. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, guys, moving on to part two, and we're going to start with the Tuesday night outing against the Panthers. There was some good news ahead of this one in that Jake McCabe practiced the morning of, although there was an issue with Linus Allmark. He did not practice in the morning skate. And an interesting one, it was Ryan Vins on the ice for practice. He's the Buttes goalie coach, and I believe he made or like half made one appearance for the Sabres years ago. It turned out that Allmark was sick, but the expectation from Housley was that he would be on the bench, and he was that night. McCabe and Pilots were listed as maybes for the weekend, but they didn't make it for this outing. 
Other than that, the only significant lineup news was that there was a shakeup between the second and third line. So Evan Rodriguez was playing with Casey and Jason Pominville on the second line, and Connor Sherry, Vladimir Sabatka, and Kyle Lacaposo joined together to make up the third line. We had Brendan Gooley and Tennyson on the bottom lines of this one, although I have to say I didn't particularly notice Brendan Gooley in this game. He was sent down after this run of games and will be with Rochester for the time being. I actually went to this game, and something kind of funny afterward, or happened beforehand. I went to 716 beforehand for a beverage, and I held the door open for someone on the way in, and I turned around, and there was Jason Botterill. He was on his way for an interview with WGR, and I said nothing to him. I was just kind of floored by the fact that he was right there. And I like thought afterwards, like, oh, I should have made a joke about Jeff Skinner, like a not a dime over eight million or something like that. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't afterwards. It would have been kind of a silly thing, um, but just something kind of interesting before the game. We got into the game, and this one started pretty well. Uh, 3:48 into the game, the top line went to work. Sam Reinhart and Eichel did some great work below the line. Eichel comes out to the left-hand corner. He dishes it out to Skinner, who's hanging out in front. Skinner takes it off a skate to his stick. He waits for Luongo to commit to going down and then roofs it from close in. It's time to pay that man, but not a dime over $8 million. Uh, Hutton has to make some saves in the middle of the first and towards the end on the PK. Risto went to the box for slashing, but they're able to kill it, and it ends 1-0 in the first with 9-6 in the shots in favor of the Panthers. Into the second, the Sabres got an early chance to go on the power play as Jared McCann sends the puck to the stands from his own zone. It's pretty fruitless, but Luongo made the save of the century, stopping one from crossing the line. He had taken a shot in the chest, and it dribbled through him, and he sprawled around backwards on his stomach to glove it away. McCann returns from being the offender and turns provider as he whips one in on Hutton entering the zone. It deflects behind the goal, but then rebounds off the boards to Troy Brower, who whacks it into Hutton's back. It hits the bottom of Hutton's skate and goes in the goal. Bit of an unfortunate one to concede about halfway through the period, but it's 1-1. Sabres respond quickly, actually within two minutes. Sam Reinhart cycles possession with Ristolainen on the right-hand side of the zone. Risto drives, coming in down low, flips it on the net, and it somehow sneaks through Luongo to restore the Sabres' lead with 8.50 remaining in the period. And an important moment occurred slightly afterwards when Skinner was chasing Barkov into the corner and he tripped him. And Barkov did go down rather hard, and Skinner was sent to the box, But the Panthers' bench were under the impression that something malicious had occurred in that trip. Barkov did go down with a bit of force, but it was a pretty standard accidental trip. That penalty passed and without relative instance. And actually, the Sabres had probably the best chances as uh, Johan Larson and Evan Rodriguez made some trouble on the forecheck. Longo made some great saves on those chances. Um, Erod had like a wide-open look at the net, and it was denied. But Sabres kill... Skinner returns from the box only to be pinned against the boards and put into a headlock by Keith Yandel. Yandel actually dropped the gloves while holding him in the corner for several seconds, but he only gets two minutes for roughing, quote-unquote, and he faced a chorus of vociferous boos from the crowd for the rest of the night. Sabres had to end the period on the penalty kill as Akposo hooks Yandel coming into the net, and we go into the third. 
The third starts, and the Sabres still have to kill off their penalty, and they're doing all right, and Hutton is making some decent saves. The boos are ringing out for Yandel brilliantly every time he gets on the puck, even if it's for a split second to make a one-touch pass. And then the boos are ringing in, and he scores from the point. Do yourself a favor and watch the replays of this one. It's something to see or, or hear, rather. The boos are just incredible, and then he scores. Actually, replays show that it was Barkov that got the tip on it, so it's his goal as his tip lifts the puck perfectly over Hutton's shoulder, and it's 2-2 early in the third. From there, it went downhill. A few minutes later, the Sabres are trying to generate some meaningful offense, and Darlene, rather foolishly, if we're being honest, loses possession on the blue line. Evgeny Dadanov comes back the other way, and Darlene hits the floor trying to strip him. He doesn't get the puck, but he gets the man from behind, and Dadanov crashes into Hutton and the net, and it's a penalty shot. They do a quick review to determine that the puck didn't actually already go in in the crashing the net, but then Dadanov gets his shot. Comes in on Hutton, and he flicks it. Hutton curls up to save, and he has it, and the crowd goes wild. And then he doesn't have it, and the puck just trickles out his backside and rolls agonizingly into the net. Hutton puts his head in his hands, and it's 3-2. Barely over a minute later, the Panthers double their lead. Dadunov comes around the goal and puts one on net. Hutton makes the save, and Frank Vetrano gets the rebound ahead of Scandella to make it 4-2. There was, in between the fourth and the fifth goal, a really significant injury. Uh, Jason Pominville came off the bench as Rasmus Ristolainen was coming back to the bench. And Risto, I believe, turned around to look back at the play as it was occurring and ran headlong into Jason Pominville. And really, neither of them were moving at great speed, but it was a an unplanned for point of contact and Jason Pominville had to be carried off the ice. He couldn't really stand on his own. He is listed as day-to-day. He's not officially in concussion protocol that I know of. Housley announced that at one point, but a really scary injury to occur late in the third on this one. And we'll be perfectly honest here, there isn't too much to talk about for the last about 10 minutes. Dadanov adds an impressive empty netter with two and a half minutes left to seal it. Sabres really struggled to generate much of anything in this third period. Three points from this one. Uh, Point one, obviously this is disappointing, but the Panthers really are deceptively good. They were supposed to be excellent this year, and they've been underachieving for most of this season. The Sabres caught them in a good moment, and we saw all parts of this team. The Sabres really dominated them for most of the first period and then couldn't get a luck for a look a look for most of the last 30 minutes of this game. Roberto Luongo was brilliant, all of the big players for the Panthers showed up and really other than Skinner's goal, the the Sabres big guns didn't and we know how much this team struggles when those big guys don't show up. Point two, there seems to be a trend of things going horribly wrong in the third. When they go bad, they typically go very, very bad. And that's kind of odd because the third period is usually when the Sabres do their business. They're the kings of comeback wins and late game equalizers, the cardiac kids, as Dan Dunleavy likes to call them. And I now remember this game, and I think back to the Flyers game at home, both were games that were close at the end of the second, 
and saw the Sabres lose by three and four goals. Harsh to call that a trend. Sometimes games just get away from you, but both of these results came against two of the worst teams in the East. Do we read that as these teams rising up to tackle the Sabres? Do we read that as the Sabres sinking to their level? Some combination of both? I'm not sure, but kind of an interesting item that both of those games that went horribly wrong in the third were against teams that you would really kind of expect the Sabres to be taken care of. Point three, the Palmer injury means it's time to make a move on the bottom six. Bringing Remy Eli into this lineup to fill in for Jason Pominville doesn't solve the issue that we've been having with that bottom six. It's time for CJ Smith. It also might be time to make a move, and this is something that we'll talk about in our mailbag portion, but there's a logjam on defense, and it might be time to turn that into someone who can help us out on the bottom six. Moving on from that disappointment into a bit of another one, we go into the Capitals. This is the day, this was Friday night, and this was the day that Berglund uh, was put on unconditional waivers for the buyout, as we talked about in part one. It is Mom's Weekend, which was kind of adorable. All of the Sabres' moms had their own box in the Capitals arena. Pominville didn't travel for this one. Up There was good news in that Scott Wilson, while he's a bit away from actually making it down to the ice, did travel with his mom. He was on ice for practice on Thursday, but is still a bit away from being game ready. Uh, McCabe and Pilot practice on Thursday, and it's determined that they will play in place of Gooley and Hunwick. There's another second-line shuffle in this one in that the second line is now comprised of Sherry Sabatka and Evan Rodriguez, and it's Giergensen's Casey and Kyle Akposo on the third line. Last week, the Sabres played these guys without Pilot and McCabe. This time, they roll lines with Bogo, Risto, and McCabe on each line. So they're able to bring a much more physical game this time around. Also last week, the Sabres took on Felix Copley. This time, the Sabres take on the cap starter and Stanley Cup champion, Braden Holtby, who had a lot to play in this game. Sabres had to kill one about five minutes in. Skinner goes to the box, and the Sabres are pretty strong and get let off the hook by three OV1 timers that would not have hit a soccer goal. He did not bring his shooting boots today. Um, they get a chance to turn it at the halfway point as Middlestat draws a hooking call on Tom Wilson. They aren't able to generate too, too much, but Connor Sherry had a really impressive drive to the net in which he was unfortunate not to draw another hooking call. Power play's fruitless, but it does lead to a shift in momentum. The Sabres are looking fast and hungry through the first 10. Some chances go either way, but I really wouldn't point to any clear-cut chances for either side. Eichel rocked a post late in the first, but we end 0-0 through the first 9-8 shots in favor of Buffalo. Into the second, Eichel and Skinner go to the net and manage to botch a quick two-on-none. Sherry gets a look out in front right afterwards. The Sabres are awake early in the second. Akposo draws a save on transition after that, and Sherry draws a tripping penalty going over the blue line for a fourth time in that same possession. Unfortunately, that power play doesn't have many positives to speak about. Siegenthaler, I've never really heard of him, goes to the box. Caps win the draw on the boards, and it's flipped to Chandler Stevenson. He's out in front, leaving Risto behind him, and scores shorthanded. 
Mega sigh, the Sabres don't take a single shot on that power play and end their man advantage down a goal. Caps turn the momentum and Hutton makes saves on Ovi and Carlson. Sabres start to turn it but get called in a pretty soft holding call while forechecking Michael Kempney. Evan Rodriguez goes to the box. Hutton makes an early save and then Kuznetsov weaves in and puts the puck inside the post and Hutton's pad. Ref waves it away but it's reviewed to see if there's something to look at. They confirm the call, but replays show that we are talking about millimeters of difference about whether or not this puck crossed the line fully. The ref essentially ruled that it was not conclusive. We needed a little luck on this one. The Sabres kill and even had a good chance on the tail end as Sabatka tries to find Larson out front, but realistically, the Sabres probably should have been down by two. That koozie goal... I personally, looking at it, looking at the images, think it's a goal. The Washington Capitals tweeted out something, that, a, a picture of it, and said, that, my friends, is a goal. And I have to be honest, it did look like it, but we move on. Sabres go right back as Casey Middlestat calls, or gets called for another hold. This one gets dicey. The Caps move the puck really well, and Kuznetsov should have scored on this one. He sells Hutton down the river at speed, but he can't get it inside the post this time. Hutton makes saves on Carlson, Oshie, and others, but the Sabres survive this one. Later in the period, Ristolainen actually picks off a defenseman at the blue line and streaks through on goal. Holtby comes way out of the net and clears possession almost at his own blue line. It falls to Sherry at the blue line, but Holtby swings his stick at it and deflects Sherry's shot out of play from almost 45 feet away from the goal. He's Again, he's practically in the neutral zone when he makes that play. Brilliant play from the Stanley Cup champion. A late flurry of chances pushes the shot advantage to 19-16 in favor of the Sabres, but it's still not their best period. They're down by one on a shorthanded goal. They probably should be down by two, but the refs felt like helping out the Sabres today. They benefited they benefited from a lot of juicy turnovers from some sloppy caps play, like that two-on-none with Eichel and Skinner, And but they just couldn't capitalize on any of them. So they go into the third, down by one. Into the third, the Sabres start off on top, and aside from a rough Erod turnover that led to an Ovi chance, they're playing well and they're getting some good opportunities. They maintain consistent pressure throughout the first five. Thompson puts a great shot off the post. They've been dominant for the opening nine minutes, and they finally get their goal. A couple fanned attempts and saves lead to the puck falling to Tage Thompson. He puts his weight into a wrist shot that is blocked, but it dribbles at speed to Johan Larson to the side of the net. He backhands it past Holtby, and the Sabres finally get their equalizer. They'd been out shooting the Caps 9-3 up to that point. Shortly afterwards, Skinner gets bowled over in the slot, and the Sabres try out their power play another time. It's Niskanen to the box for tripping. Sabres looked okay in the second half and were struggling to establish possession for a bit, but they don't get any real chances outside of one Skinner chance in the slot. Holtby saves. We go back to 5-on-5. Seven minutes remaining, Hutton chases the puck behind the net, and for the second time in about a week, doesn't give himself enough time to play it. Kuzi chases him behind the net, pinches him, and steals the puck. He dishes it to Wilson, who puts it into the empty net. And there were some narratives afterwards 
um, not narratives, there were some comments afterwards. They asked Hutton about this instance that was, let's be perfectly honest, it was his fault. He shouldn't have gone behind the net. He got squeezed there. Whether it was a miscommunication between him and the defenders, or if he just went back there to try to play something he shouldn't have, he's at fault. And they asked him about it. And all he said was, a guy got a hack in on it. I kind of fumbled it. They capitalized. And they asked him one further question. He says, I'd have to watch it again. And we'll talk about him in a second, but I was rather unimpressed by those comments. We'll finish out the game and we'll talk about him in a second. From the goal, the Sabres have to go right onto the penalty kill as Sabaka goes to the box. They kill it pretty resiliently and then draw ones themselves. It's Casey getting tripped again by Matt Dowd. In the meantime, Holtby injured himself stretching for a pilot wrist shot at one point. They had to check him out on more than one occasion, but he did finish the game the Sabres pulled and Holtby held the, the caps in the game on several occasions during that power play. The game ends 2-1 in favor of the Washington Capitals. Three points. Vladimir Sabatka was okay as the number two center in this game. It's not where we want him to be, if we're being perfectly honest. He has been vocal about how he doesn't feel he's a third-line or particularly fourth-line player, despite his skill set and numbers output suggesting that he is exactly a third line or particularly fourth line player. But in this game, I thought he was really good with his link up play and his transition. Having pace on his wing probably helps. He'd been playing with Ocposo and Pominville lately. This time around, he got to play with uh, Connor Sherry, sorry, and Evan Rodriguez, two of the pacier players on the team. So that definitely helped him out. He or we, sorry, need something from him and others. The stat that was put out on MSG uh, was that Jack Eichel, Jeff Skinner, and Sam Reinhart have combined for 44% of the Sabres' goals and 41% of their points. This was the first game that Eichel, Skinner, and Reinhart were held pointless since the game against the Rangers on November 4th. That was the one where... Uh, Lundquist stood on his head. Connor Sherry had the goal, but it was unassisted. I believe the Sabres lost 4-1. And that was the last time that Eichel, Skinner, and Reinhardt did not have a point in a Sabres game. So every game since then, they have contributed. This time around, they did not. While Vladimir Sabatka was good, we needed more from the rest of the team. They, the, the Capitals were one of the first teams this season to fully shut down the top line, particularly with Eichel and Skinner, but also Sam Reinhardt as well. And so we need more from that bottom nine. And Sabatka was good, but he's not the most effective player in the front end making things happen. And I think that's, that's going to be an issue going forward. Point two, the Sabres were better 5v5 than on the power play this game. Even if we don't consider the shorthanded goal, which we should, the Sabres were the better team 5-on-5 and then struggled to, to establish any sort of meaningful possession or chances on the power play. They went 0-for-3 on this one, and it's still uh, an issue in that it's 
It's difficult to win games if your special teams don't show up, and they were given multiple opportunities to win this game, um, particularly on the power play when they pulled and played six on four for a minute at the end, and they were unable to do so. So significant issues on that front and items to work on going forward kind of brings us into point three, which is the defensive core coming back healthy and ready to go for this team made that team significantly better. But the Sabres should be furious with themselves. McCabe and Pilot were fantastic. We'll say right off the bat, what an improvement on Tennyson and Nate Beaulieu. Even though I rather like Nate Beaulieu, those two guys coming in over him are make for significant improvements to this team. But at the end of the day, Braden Holtby was the Caps' best player. And even the NBC guys who spent most of their time just waxing lyrical about the Capitals, despite the fact that they were dominated for most parts of the final stanza, admitted that the Caps didn't deserve to win this game. A shorthanded goal, an error, and a failure to capitalize on possession and chances led to the Sabres leaving this trip with nothing. And it's Kind of increasingly unfortunate in that the Sabres haven't won in D.C. in five years. The Caps were willing to hand them this one, and they didn't take it. So coming home from mom's weekend, they didn't make their moms proud. I'm sure their moms are proud of them. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say that. But they're coming home with nothing on this one, and you got to get the sense that they were they would be pretty upset about this one coming home. They had this Washington Capitals team on the ropes for large portions of this game, and couldn't capitalize. Moving on to the last outing of the week, the Sabres played a back-to-back, this time at home against the Ducks, Saturday night, coming back from D.C., playing the Ducks. Sabres were looking for the first sweep in the series against Anaheim for the first time in many, many seasons. Uh, 2011-2012 was the last time the Sabres were able to beat the Ducks twice in one season. Lineup-wise, a little bit of a shakeup. Scandella moves to the top line with Bogo, and I was trying not to puke. Darlene goes to the third line with McCabe, but Ristolainen and Darlene actually led the team with ice time in this game, so Scandella didn't actually take a top-line role in this one. He was just formally declared as being the top-line defenseman. Linus Allmark is in goal for this one. Gibson's in goal for the Ducks. Corey Perry is still out injured. Cam Fowler is out with an injury after taking a puck to the face. Ryan Miller is out with a sprained MCL. Uh, Rickard Raquel is out with an angle injury. And Patrick Eves is out with a fractured rib. The Ducks are hurting a bit, and it showed in this one. It seemed like they didn't really have much of a game plan to win the game playing hockey. They more have had a game plan to win the game by making the Sabres angry. And the opening minute sees some exchanges between both teams. Allmark makes a good save and recycles possession. Sherry gets a one-timer look out in front and Gibson saves. The opening minutes were pretty frantic. It was over three and a half minutes before Allmark stopped one in the chest and play was actually stopped. Ducks were not devoid of luck. They needed some good saves. Sabres are clearly on top, and they look to push that with a great wraparound attempt from Jack Eichel. Gibson saves. Tage Thompson also almost sneaks one in from an impossible angle. He was basically on the goal line and shot it, and it hit the post and catches Gibson, but he's able to squeeze it somewhere in his equipment to safety. Sabres get their first power play opportunity as Pontus Aberg goes to the box for holding. It took them a while to get going, and Darlene really only has the 
only significant chance. He picks one up from wrist line and on the right-hand side, but he doesn't one-time it, which we had bemoaned a few weeks ago. Instead, he takes possession, glides in, makes some space down the right-hand side a little closer to the goal, and wrists one. Gibson makes an easy save, but remember that move because it's going to be important later in the game. Ducks aren't devoid of chances. They make a few and hit a post once or twice. Linus is strong, and the Sabres get a little bit of luck to take care of the rest. In the midst of that pressure, Carter Rowney goes to the box for slashing. It's a very light slashing call, if we're being totally honest. And it's the B team for a while of Evan Rodriguez, Kyle Poso, Connor Sherry, Lawrence Pilot, and I believe Tage Thompson was the fifth party out there. They get some chances, but it eventually cycles to the A team. They're moving the puck well, and eventually Ristolainen and slides it to Darlene, and he slides down that right-hand side, just like he did earlier in the period. This time, when he wrists one, it's right in the top corner, and Gibson is screened by Sam Reinhart. It flies in, top cheese, and the Sabres have a 1-0 lead. Ducks try to generate some momentum with some shots. Linus is making some easier saves, but they're also trying to generate some momentum by picking on some of the Sabres' star players. Kessler put Casey Middlestat in a headlock off a faceoff, and the Ducks just took turns teeing off on Jack Eichel with some hits. It's a tad dicey, and at the end, Nick Ritchie takes a shot to Skinner's back after the play had expired. It gets a little handsy, but nothing of significant note. Sabres start the second on the power play um, due to Richie's cross-checking of Skinner. Into the second, the power play is mostly fruitless. Sabres had a lot of possession, but they don't get much in terms of chances other than Skinner's one opportunity to rock the post from the slot and TT's blast from Ovi's office, but Gibson was able to save that one. Tell you what. There aren't a whole lot of chances, uh, but it's still chippy. Casey Middlestat hasn't forgotten about Kessler's headlock, and he returns the favor with a little bump off the puck. Kessler chased him into the corner to return the favor. It all gets a little handsy again. But after that, the game comes alive. Gibson denies Eichel on a juicy rebound out in front with 13.30 remaining. He later had to stone Remy Eli on the breakaway. Linus has to respond as Getzlav gets a good wraparound attempt. That period of play springs Tage Thompson out all alone, but a diving Ducks defenseman does just enough to strip him of the chance. Skinner draws an interference call off Cagliano as he enters the zone. I don't really know that it's really interference. He he tripped him. Like, there was a lot of contact. If, if there were a call for meaty tripping, I guess that's what it was. But anyway, Skinner takes a little bump from Cagliano as he goes to the box. The Ducks are really not liking him in this game. And I don't know. I don't know that Jeff Skinner at this point is the one you want to be making angry. But the Ducks are able to kill the power play through some resilient defensive work. few chances to end the period and Bogo ends up with a tripping call right at the end, so the Sabres will have to kill that to start the third. It's still chippy as everybody's going to the bench, and Bogo and Jake Dotchkin exchange some words. We find out at the start of the third that Dotchkin was assessed a game misconduct for refusing to leave the ice, and the broadcast showed a clip of him, even after Bogo had left, staying on the bench to yell at some of the refs, and he's gone for the rest of this one. Into the third, Sabres killed the penalty, and Jay, uh, Jack, Jack McCabe, Jake McCabe has to bail out Allmark um, after 
he had been exposed. McCabe dives in and clears one off the line, and the Sabres press on. Ducks have some good pressure to start this third period. They outshot the Sabres 4-0 through the first four minutes, and they get a chance to go a bit further with that as Sabaka goes to the box on a pretty light tripping call. Penalty kill is testy. The Ducks make some good chances and get a good post ringing in, but the Sabres have a good kill aside from that. Penalty goals goes 3-for-3 three three in this game. It's still a bit in favor of the Ducks through the first 10, a bit. The Ducks are out shooting 8-1, to one, with that one being a pretty good effort from Ristolainen and he was, as he was driving to the net. But on their second shot of the period, over 11 minutes in, they score. Pilot drops one over the line. It comes to Sam Reinhart on the boards on the other side. Reinhart dumps a backhand to Skinner going to the net. Skinner fakes in, goes out, and backhands a beauty behind Gibson. We told you not to make him mad. The rest of the game gets a bit flat, if we're being perfectly honest. It wasn't the most exhilarating game to begin with, which I think you can expect against a team like the Ducks. They're old and they're hurt, and they seem to be playing with a priority to neutralize the Sabres' strengths rather than to press their own. The Sabres can't use their speed and technical ability as the Ducks are just trying to shut them down and make them angry. Ducks pull with over two minutes left. The Sabres win a defensive draw. Sam Reinhart does well to shield the puck and then puts it to Jack Eichel on the blue line. Eichel backhands a soft one to Sherry, who buries the empty netter. That's his first goal in 18 games, so it's good to see him back. 3-0, and the Sabres take their two points to Christmas. Point one. Uh, We did not address this during the game recap, but best wishes to the Sabres play-by-play announcer, Rick Janaret. Shortly before that penalty kill in the third period, a pretty traumatic event happened off the ice. Uh, Janaret went quiet for well over a minute, and the rest of the crew were somehow able to communicate to Rob Ray on the ice that Rick Janaret was not commentating anymore. And you actually, if you listen back to the broadcast, you hear Rob Ray say, okay, to somebody off mic almost three or four minutes after the last comment from Rick Janaret. We found out later that RJ had suffered some sort of heart-related issue. I don't know if that formally means heart attack or if they're just leaving it at that. Brian Duff took over at the commercial break and did a great job calling the play-by-play for the rest of the game. Rob Ray himself had done a great job calling the game by himself up to that point from the ice level. And we just wish best wishes to Rick Jenneret. He has been, he's such a staple of the Buffalo community and Buffalo sports franchises. Really, if if you had someone ask you to tell them about the Buffalo Sabres. I don't know that in the history of the Buffalo Sabres you could get much more than three minutes in without mentioning Rick Janaret. I mean, he's called Sabres games since the 70s. He has been rumored to be to be days away from retirement since like the 2008 season, and he has still pressed on, and he loves hockey, and he loves Buffalo hockey, and Buffalo hockey loves him, and so we wish him all the best in his recovery. News was released that he was doing well and was resting. Uh, somebody, I, th- I think it was Rob Ray, but I can't remember, tweeted that Janaret had texted him saying, still kicking. And so keep kicking, RJ. We can't wait to see you back um, as soon as possible. Best wishes to him. Point two, 
Sabres fans need a delayed Christmas gift of a Skinner contract. Skinner's 26th goal of the season in this game against the Ducks means that he has outscored Sam Reinhart and Jack Eichel's last season totals. They were the joint top goal scorers with 25 goals each. Sam Reinhart scored those 25 goals in 82 games. The Sabres have only played 37 games this season, and Jeff Skinner has 26. Uh, the Sabres haven't had a 30-goal scorer since Jason Pominville in the 2011-2012 season. There are some things to consider here in that I, we have to consider that this pace is not sustainable. His shooting percentage is a 21.3% according to Hockey Reference. That's insane, and it won't be sustained. That's higher than Alex Ovechkin right now, who's at like 20.9, who himself is having a career year. And if you, I was looking at the stats online at, um, I believe it was Fox, uh, Fox Sports, who had the stats for shooting percentages. And the only other players floating up around Jeff Skinner's shooting percentages have significantly less shots taken. Like Jeff Skinner has only taken, I believe, around 110 shots, and most of the other players floating up around the 21 percentage uh, hot, or shooting percentage were around like 50 shots or 40 shots. And so players who score as much as Jeff Skinner don't have the shooting percentage that Jeff Skinner has. He's been remarkably efficient so far. He's going to slow down. We have to be ready for that. Like I do not think we are looking at a 60 goal scorer scoring Jeff Skinner, even if that is what he is technically on pace for. But that said, he's going to slow down, but the Sabres have to lock him in. If they're going to continue to build from the position they're in, they need to lock him in to continue this build. I, I think even just from a morale standpoint, Losing Jeff Skinner at this point, losing this quality of player and this quality of person, I think is too significant for them to let happen. No one, I think, shed a single tear when Evander Kane got traded. Even though they are equal caliber players, actually, I don't even know if they are equal caliber players. I would say that Jeff Skinner is better than Evander Kane. But even if you call them equal caliber players, no one shed a tear when Evander Kane got traded. It will be devastating if the Sabres aren't able to lock him in. The rumor is is that they've been putting off contract talks until after the new year and that they'll sit down. Elliot Freeman stated in a report that he believes Jeff Skinner, he has word of mouth that Jeff Skinner does want to stay in Buffalo, something we've talked about on the show before. That's something we really would obviously love to see happen. Point three. This game goes totally differently without Bogosian, McCabe, Scandella, and Ristolainen. Um, you might be able to call that group kind of a modern-day enforcers. Nobody's really a fighter anymore, although Bogos had a few scraps this year. But they keep the opposing team honest. The Ducks tried to bully the Sabres this year. They couldn't match them for skill or for speed, so they tried to rough up Jack Eichel, Casey Middlestat, and Jeff Skinner. And Bogo was there again and again to get back at him and get under their skin. He had that weird interaction with Jake Dotchkin after the second that led to a game misconduct for Dotchkin, which mostly signaled the end to the shenanigans. Once one of their guys got thrown out of the game, they kind of cooled it. 
We need these guys going forward. They are not the goons of the 90s or the 2000s. They can play, and their style of play is important for the success of their team, but also their ability to be physical and push back against those teams who are going to try that against the younger talent on the Sabres. Stock up, stock down over these three. I've got two names, and one of them is going to come back to something we mentioned earlier in the show. Stock up is Linus Allmark. He was excellent in his shutout win over the Ducks in a week where Carter Hutton didn't exactly cover himself in glory with his performances. The plan for Linus Allmark's development is working. He's getting a solid body of work with opportunities to start small and be successful and grow from there. He has really not had many, if any, what you would call bad games. And he was largely excellent in this game. He had to be bailed out by McCabe in that one instance when one shot trickled through. But his jump to being a full-time NHL player has been rather seamless with the way they've been able to set it up for him. That said, stock down, Carter Hutton, just a little bit. He wasn't terrible against Florida, but he'll want that penalty shot back. He was at fault for the game winner against Washington, and as we alluded to earlier, I'm really disappointed by his lack of responsibility taken afterwards. I get a little tired of the it starts with me talk about being better, but when you make the mistake, raise your hand and own up to it and then move on. I think we all would have felt a lot better about this situation if Carter Hutton had just taken responsibility and said, yep, wish I could have handled that one a little better, stuff to look at on the film, we'll work on it and move on. Something like that would have felt so much better than, yeah, guy got in and was able to hack at it and they capitalized. Well, why was he able to do that, Hutton? Like the, the, these, are, these are things you need to be able to take care of and you need to be able to move on. And if he had just raised his hand and said, yep, that was a mistake, I would have felt a lot better about the situation. His lack of responsibility in that case, at least publicly, was a little concerning to me. All of that said, Hutton has been great this season, and these two instances don't change that. The Sabres have won several games this season on Hutton's shoulders. These are two negative drops in the bucket, but I'm not at all letting it mar my opinion of Carter Hutton. He's been largely, largely fantastic for most of this season. Would have liked to see a slightly better public reaction than the one we got related to his mistake. That's about going to do it for part two. Join us in part three, where we'll be previewing the Sabres' next outings, talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and opening up our mailbag with questions from the listeners. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, guys, welcome to part three, where we're going to be looking ahead to the Sabres' next three outings. And we'll start off with Thursday when the Sabres will welcome the St. Louis Blues to town. Blues are 14, 16, and 4 on the season. And you've got to say that it has all gone wrong after an offseason that saw them gear up for what we thought was going to be a push for contending status. They already had a significantly strong core. They added Ryan O'Reilly, Tyler Bozak, and Patrick Maroon, and that was supposed to give them the added steel that they were going to need to get to the next level. 
and it's done far from that. They have just now, in the last week, I believe, crawled out from the bottom of their division. The Chicago Blackhawks have taken that status below them. They've fired head coach Mike Yo, who had that, that weird interaction where he openly stated in a press conference, yeah, my job should be in question, and it was, and he was fired. And the narrative over the last few weeks has been that Doug Armstrong has informed other GMs that all Blues players are available for trade, including Tarasenko and Ryan O'Reilly. They are looking to shake things up, but in the meantime, they won their last one out. But looking at the results, it looks like they've only won back-to-back games two other times this season. They've had very much a one-step-forward-one-step-back season, especially looking at their record. I mean, 14-16-4. and four. They, they'll, they'll make some positive results, and then they take a step back. They're looking to finally start a win streak going against the Sabres on Thursday. I am interested to see what is said about Patrick Berglund during this game. It's a very unfortunately scheduled game. Um after his whole suspension buyout deal. And actually, I just realized I misspoke. I've been talking about this game as if it's a game at home. It's not. The Sabres are headed to St. Louis because it's an 8 p.m. puck drop. Um, So I'm very interested. Like, typically you get those, you know, thank you for your service. Welcome back to player X who returns after a trade or signing somewhere else. And we were probably going to see that from or for Sabatka, Berglund and probably Tage Thompson, and I'm interested to see what the narrative is about that with this game. From that, the Sabres do actually play at home on Saturday against the Bruins. Uh, Sabres last beat Boston 4-2 in Boston a couple weeks ago, and the Bruins have gone 3-1 since then. They play the Devils Thursday night, and after a few slips on the Sabres end, the Bruins have made up some ground in the standings. And this is a big game if the Sabres hope to keep their third place standing in the division for the time being. They're currently at 47 points while the Bruins are at 44. And let's be honest, the Sabres probably won't stay there all season, but doing so for as long as possible is not a bad thing for their playoff hopes. In between the two fixtures, the Bruins welcomed back Patrice Bergeron, who has hit the ground running since his return from injury, and we might see Zdeno Chara, who's been out with a knee injury. A quick Google search said that he will probably be in the lineup against the Devils on Thursday, so we'll see if he makes the game on Saturday. And closing out the year, the Sabres have a New Year's Eve fixture against the Islanders in Buffalo with a 6 p.m. puck drop. The narrative here is that the Islanders are probably the biggest threat to the Sabres' first playoff appearance since 2010-2011. They are the first team in the East who are out of a wild card spot at 40 points. The Canadians have 43, the Bruins have 44, and the Sabres have 47. They've been steady this season as they have tried to navigate life without John Tavares. Rising star Matthew Barzell has been complimented by a strong season performance by really now veteran players Josh Bailey and Anders Lee. All guys the Sabres will have to be wary of. Robin Lehner has been impressive as well. He's not their nailed-on starter looking at things uh, statistically. Thomas Grice has a few more games, but... 
outside of games played, they're almost identical statistically and performance-wise, and neither of them have been poor to say anything. The Islanders play the Senators and Leafs before coming to Buffalo on New Year's Eve. Down the road, I forgot to mention the last few episodes that Kevin Porter has been injured alongside Kyle Criscolo, had been out, who had been out for about a month. Criscolo did return to practice and play on Tuesday. He comes back, or he came back as Nylander was out with an upper body injury. Amherst had a rough go this week. They let in two goals on Wednesday to squander a 4-3 lead and lose 5-4. They then let in two third-period goals on Friday to lose to Hartford 4-2 on Friday, and then they got walloped by the same Hartford team 5-1 on Saturday. Some rough spots in these losses. Uh, Matt Tennyson was on the ice for all four goals on Friday. Nylander missed that one with an upper body injury that wasn't that serious. He did return for the game on Saturday. He didn't really contribute much of anything through that game but he's a player we definitely want to see playing. Bright spots in those losses, CJ Smith scored for four straight games through Friday. He did not have the game on Saturday. I believe that was Yannick Vellou, who's someone they signed in the offseason to an AHL contract. He had two assists in those four games as well for six points in four games. Nylander did clear that injury to come back for that Saturday game, which is also a bright spot, although he wasn't or didn't exactly do anything remarkable in that game. Amherst are looking to rebound this week, and it's not an easy week to do it. They play Cleveland on Wednesday. Uh, They're at home to the Marlies on Friday, and they're away to Utica on Saturday. Three very, very solid teams in the division who have gained ground on Rochester in recent weeks as they have have slipped up kind of in tune with the the Amherst and their or with the Amherst, with the Sabres in their recent weeks of slipping up just a little bit in the standings. Around town, not too much this week, but a little bit of an update with something we've talked about in the past. You might remember a few weeks ago with the What Are You Reading Part 1 item that we talked about uh, involving Senators owner Eugene Melnick and Ottawa businessman and real estate developer, essentially, John Ruddy. Essentially, the two of them were involved in a project at a in a region of Ottawa known as the LeBreton Flats, which was their plan to planned location to develop a new stadium for the Ottawa Senators. And the plan was going forward. Ruddy had really good connections with the Ottawa community, which was really great because Eugene Melnick really doesn't, and they were moving forward with that. And then all of a sudden the project stalled and Eugene Melnick was suing John Ruddy for over $700 million, Canadian, I believe, um, $700 million because John Ruddy had been involved in a side project essentially next door to the LeBreton Flats that he was going to be developing on the side that Eugene Melnick apparently did not know about. The new news this week is that John Ruddy has countersued for over a billion dollars and the controversy and negative PR continues. Who knows where this one ends? We talked about when we talked about it a couple weeks ago that at the end of this road probably lies the end of the Ottawa Senators, depending on 
where this project goes, what this stadium looks like, and whether or not their owner is going to be able to just calm down all of the narratives that have gone on on and off the ice this season. And this is one that is increasingly pressing. I mean, if if Eugene Melnick gets taken for a billion dollars, who knows what that's going to say for the Ottawa Senators. Even if he doesn't, who knows what that PR is going to do for the Ottawa Senators. So significant developments there. Not too much going out around town at this time. The league is currently on their Christmas break that is negotiated in their most recent contract that there are no games played over the Christmas period. So almost everybody plays on Thursday and Saturday as they come back. Moving on to our mailbag. Remember, you can tweet us at ickgaw, that's I-C-G-A-W on Twitter. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. All that information is in the show notes. This one comes from Robert on Twitter, and he asks, do we massage the roster before the deadline or do we push it to the off season? And there are many factors to that question. I think there are two main issues that warrant attention. There is a bottom six issue that is long documented, and there's also a log jam at defense, and both of those issues probably warrant attention. The bottom six issue is well known, but Jason Botterill is probably going to wait on that one unless someone offers him a deal that's too good to pass up. He'll want to see what he's got in Rochester, first and foremost, at the NHL level. That's his way. That said, we need to see C.J. Smith soon. I think that's the one significant disappointment for the Rochester American products this season is that there has not been a call-up outside of Lawrence Pilot. Lawrence Pilot was excellent, but we haven't seen some of that offensive talent who were doing rather well, Victor Olofsson for a minute, Alex Nylander here and there, but really CJ Smith throughout the entire season has not been rewarded yet. We'll probably see that before we see any kind of trade. I'd also like to see the Sabres start looking into some weapons to go on the second line. We talked about how Vladimir Sabadka was okay, but isn't the talent or the incisiveness that you want to see out of a second line center. Our clear-cut options on the wing are Sherry and Akposo, and neither of them have been impressive for the last 15-20 games. Some development there would be beneficial. However, I think in all of that, it's important for us to keep in mind that this isn't our year. The Sabres are building, and it's not the year to spend massively or even at all unless it's a good deal for the Sabres. They're looking at oodles of cap pace, cap space this offseason with Pominville, Matt Molson, and now the Berglund money leading to a hefty 14 to $15 million in cap space that they'll have available. They'll have the capability to try something there as well. Tweaking the forwards will probably wait until they see what's available and what they'll be capable of doing with that then. That said, while that can wait, the defensive logjam probably should be assessed. There is too much at the Sabres level and not enough at the Amherst level. Trading Taylor Fadoon, while a good move for the PR aspect of the team at the time, and calling up Pilot has hurt their depth. Other than Hunt, and I have to say that other than Hunwick, they probably can't get any of those lower tier guys like Nelson or Bolieu through waivers. But maybe Nelson, but I'm not so sure. And they're going to be 
scratching three guys a night on the defensive end if all of them get healthy at the same time. Trying a trade that involves moving one or two of those guys for a package that also includes some younger AHL defensemen might be a benefit. We saw a great move this offseason where um, Jason Botterill did something kind of similar to that. He flipped Nick Baptiste, who we were pretty certain really wasn't going anywhere in terms of NHL outlook for Jack Doherty, who has been rather steady and impressive as a young AHL defenseman um, and has made himself a bit of a mainstay in the second and third defensive line there in Rochester. And so we're, we're seeing some good things out of him. Another move like that where you move a couple of the guys that you can't quite squeak through waivers for maybe some younger AHL defenseman might benefit. Something else um, of possible note in that regard, I was cruising through cap friendly and I noticed one other item. Nate Beaulieu makes $2.4 million and is arbitration eligible this summer. The Sabres might want to get out of having to pay him that again or go through arbitration. Of all the guys on the tail end, he also probably has the most value if the Sabres wanted to make a move, certainly more so than Casey Nelson, who I certainly like, Matt Hunwick, who I like as well, um, and Marco Scandella, who I don't particularly like, but his cap hit of $4 million over the next two seasons probably isn't going to be the most movable item. Um, as I've said before, I, I like all of these guys, bottom six offensive players and the defensive players, so I'll be sad to see any of them go, but something might definitely need to happen on this end of things typically or particularly on the bottom bottom part of the defense and clearing up a bit of a log jam there so it'll be interesting to see what happens in that regard Robert thank you so much for your question um, something that we're all certainly thinking about going forward as we we creep actually we're not really creeping towards the deadline it's only about two months away and it'll be really interesting to see what is made as this team looks to hopefully make their first playoff push in a long, long time. Robert, thanks for your question. Remember, you can tweet us at ickgaw and email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. That information is in the show notes, and that's going to do it for our show. I'd like to close by saying and giving a, once again, very warm thank you for all of your support so far this season. I have so loved talking with you guys and getting to know you guys and talking about hockey. At the end of the day, I wanted to start this because I wanted to talk about hockey, and you guys give me an endless opportunity to do that. Thank you for all of your support and kind words. We will see you guys in the new year where we'll be coming, coming back, talking about our games against the Blues, Bruins, and Islanders. Thanks again. I hope you guys have had a wonderful holiday. You have a happy new year. Be safe, everybody. We love you. Dick in to Oposo. Oposo hanging on to it back at the point. Oposo drops it off in the corner to Eichel. Eichel buzzing around. Eichel in the side lane. Score!